Manufacturing a drug isn't enough. The drug has to get from the manufacturer to the patient. How does it get there, and how much do you have to pay to get it there? I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Tony Lanzone, Managing Director here at Cineos Health. Tony is an expert on trade and distribution, and Tony will help explain why the heck a pharma company pays so much to get product from their house to your house. We'll learn trade and distribution next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Tony Lanzone, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Jeff, it's great being with you. Thank you. We've worked together for a long time, Tony, and I know that you work on trade and distribution, but I don't really know what trade and distribution is, even after all these years. What the heck is trade and distribution and why should a pharma company care about it? You know, it's interesting you ask that. Trade and distribution, I think, historically has been this back office operations that just took care of itself and it was just presumed things would work efficiently. And I think the last, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years, a lot of what brought more visibility to trade are the specialty products that are coming out in oncology, in rare disease and other specialty areas. And it's brought an increased interest on trade and really delving into how can this work for us? How can it be a competitive advantage? And having said that, I would describe trade and distribution at a real high level as how do we get product from wherever we're manufacturing it or growing it or building it to the customer, be it a healthcare professional for a buy and build product or to a patient at their home, if it's coming via specialty pharmacy and being dropped off at their home in a cooler or to a retail pharmacy, you know, anything kind of in between. So when we talk about trade, we're not talking international trade. We're talking about getting pills, potions from our manufacturer, our company, our pharma company into the hands of whoever dispenses it ultimately. That could be a CVS pharmacy, could be a Walgreens pharmacy, it could be something that you call a specialty pharmacy. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, I think you are. And I think in terms of the logistics behind it, to your point about is it international or within a given continent, it really just depends on where the product is being sourced, the active product ingredient, the API, and where the product is being manufactured. So if it's a manufacturing facility in the U.S. and it's simply being shipped to the trade partner that's aggregating all this product, a 3PL is typically that sort of a partner, but it's being shipped to them, maybe from South Carolina to Kentucky, for example. 3PL means third-party logistics. Is that correct? Yeah. And we can spend a little bit of time talking about those organizations because they are an integral part. And really, you could argue the starting point for a lot of the distribution and fulfillment of product through different channels and to the end user. As we've worked with some companies that are, especially smaller companies, launching their first product, I've noticed what the trade and distribution is costs a lot more than what they had expected. What can you expect to pay for trade and distribution and what the heck are you paying for? (laughs) It's an interesting question. And just to add a little bit of context around that, small and emerging pharmaceutical biotech companies have a different cost structure with trade partners than a top 10 pharma company would, for example. And that simply is the way the convention has been set for decades. But what you're paying for, whether you're a top 10 pharma company or an emerging company with the first brand to market, is you're paying for the assurance that your product is going to be delivered in a timely fashion, in an agreed upon fashion to the end customer and that you are paying for everything that's required to make that happen, whether it's the FTEs in a warehouse that are picking the product to get it into a pallet, to the transportation provider that's either flying the product to a destination or has it on a back of a truck, to the procurement individuals of the ultimate customer who are then unpacking those totes 
and placing product in inventory, be it in a Pixis machine or a shelf in a pharmacy or some sort of cold chain cooler or freezer that's required for certain products based on the handling requirements that are part of their delivery process. And how much does this cost? I mean, if you're a new company and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to deliver product through trade and distribution. I'm going to have to pay somebody to do it. How much do I have to pay them to do it? Incidentally, I know it's a lot. Why don't they just use UPS? Yeah. So I'll take the first part of your question and then I'll come back to the UPS because UPS is, in fact, a very viable third-party logistics provider in the market and they do have a pharmaceutical healthcare vertical. In terms of what you pay, what a manufacturer pays, the Increments are typically framed in percentages or basis points. So if you're an emerging pharma organization, first product to market, second product to market, you're probably paying, again, these are averages, but somewhere between 9 to 12%. And that is a percentage of the product's WAC price, the wholesale acquisition cost. So that's where the percentage is derived from, and that's the calculation you run. So somewhere between 10 and 12% of the list price, the WAC price of your drug is being allocated to that distribution partner. If you're a big pharma, and again, you have multiple portfolios, we know who those companies are, you're paying much less. And again, there's the tale as old as time argument about why does that occur? That's just the way the market has evolved. And that's the way the system is set up. There's lots of arguments around volume and velocity and total product dollars that are going through a system for a top five, top 10 company versus an emerging company. And I think we would agree order of magnitude. Those are very, very different levels of product and dollars. That may be part of the answer, but converse argument is, well, it doesn't really cost any more to pick a product off a shelf or a couple of products for a big company versus an emerging company. So I think that's the manufacturer point of view. But suffice it to say, Jeff, that's kind of the split, if you will, on the cost structure. Again, emerging companies pay more, large established companies pay less, but ultimately it is a percentage of the drug whack price. And that's where we get to UPS or the United States Postal Service or FedEx. If we're talking about something that costs, you know, I'm just putting a number out there, $600 a month for the whack for the price of the drug, and I'm paying $60 to have it shipped to my local carry North Carolina CVS. I don't get it. Why wouldn't I just put it in FedEx and save myself half or more? It's a great point. And what I would say is in terms of the supply chain, the drug fulfillment segment, if you break it down and we talk about third-party logistics firms that take possession of product, parse it out and distribute it to forward distribution centers of wholesalers or can drop ship straight to a customer, those are both options Coming back to your question around what's the cheap alternative, why would I do that? Well, there's a lot of support, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of services that are wrapped around those trade partner deals that are really needed by pharma, whether you're a big pharma or this is your first product to market. And I would say those services, some of which are government-driven, when we talk about the Drug Supply Chain Security Act and some of the specific provisions that are part of that around track and trace and serialization ultimately moving to a supply chain that is totally serialized so that a individual package unit of a much larger shipment can be identified and tracked and traced. When you think about the investment and the requirements that are put forth and that are mandated in some specific instances by the government and others just because of good practice, good manufacturing practice and distribution practice, all those sorts of requirements contribute to the cost factor. Now, having said that, there are ways and distribution strategies that can help reduce that cost and help deflect some of it. 
And we can certainly talk about those, but I think not trying to sound like an industry spokesperson in support of the supply chain and the broader players that are in it, there is quite a bit of investment that's been required to be made in order for them to provide the services and really the actionable information to customers, to manufacturers that help this process maintain its efficiency and its productivity. So I think those are the things I would cite just at a high level that contribute to the cost. And to your comment about, hey, why don't I just go United States Postal Service or UPS or FedEx? UPS and FedEx both have pharmaceutical life science verticals that in logistics. So they do have turnkey programs that would allow for pharma to engage those organizations to help fulfill drug and get drug to certain customers. So they certainly are options. And in many cases, you know, are actually carrying product to forward distribution centers in certain instances. The key point is where are they involved and where does it make sense to engage them versus a large wholesaler's 3PL, for example. And those are the kind of the puts and takes that manufacturers work through to determine what's the best deal for them. You mentioned earlier that if we're talking at one end might be the lowest level of service that you need, there's something more to it that makes it more difficult than my intent to email somebody. If I could, I could just email the product to them. It doesn't work. It's not that simple. There's something else to it than even using regular mail. There's at least a specialty pharma service within some of these larger companies. But then at the other extreme is what you mentioned was a specialty pharmacy. Can you just tell us what's a specialty pharmacy and what's so special about them? Well, especially pharmaceutical is... When you go to describe it, you almost get stuck for a moment, but there's a couple of characteristics that would stipulate a product is a specialty product. And having said that, a lot of manufacturers want their product to be quote unquote specialty, but it doesn't always work that way. Just because you want it to be doesn't mean it is. The criteria that are typically discussed or highlighted would be special handling requirements. So what does that mean? Well, it might require cold chain storage. So keeping the product at a certain temperature level range while it's being shipped. That might require a cooler. It might require something much more complicated to manage that temperature requirement. That's one criterion. Others would include specific instructions for a patient. So patient education is required in an intense way, more than just a package insert, but there's some training required, or maybe a healthcare professional needs to administer the first dose. So if it's not a physician, it may be a nurse who's visiting the patient at home and instructing them on how to inject the drug if it's a subcutaneous product, for example, something like that. Cost is also a criterion in all of this. And generally, the WAC price point that would signify or designate a specialty product, you know, is something on the order of twelve to $1,500 a month. That would be kind of a low waterline level of a quote-unquote specialty product in terms of pricing. So those are just a couple of things, Jeff, that would designate a product to be a specialty. Again, special handling, storage, patient administration, instructions, guidance on adverse events, those sorts of things, kind of a high-touch product. And then the price is another one that would designate a specialty designation. I think a lot of us are familiar now with cold storage as being particularly challenging requirement in some cases because of the COVID vaccines. As we record this, the first COVID vaccine from Pfizer has been approved for emergency use authorization and requires cold chain. And for a while, at least in its shipment or its production and holding, it has to be at negative 80 C, which is cold. <laughs> that's colder than your normal freezer. That's the cold lab freezer. Talk through a little bit about what cold chain means and why it's so challenging or what you're thinking about cold chain as we come through this example. I think the COVID vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine being the first out is a great example because that is truly a cold chain storage requirement. 
not just something that can be done with a dry ice and a temperature monitor in a cooler, but something that requires much more aggressive management. Yeah, but they are shipping some in dry ice in these packages for breaking apart, I think directly from Pfizer, if I'm recalling. You're right. And the complexity comes in in the distribution fulfillment component. So for example, here in Philadelphia, Philadelphia International Airport was beginning to get air cargo shipments coming in with the vaccine earlier this week and had prepared a section of a hangar with specialized cold chain equipment to handle the temperature requirements, the minus 80 Celsius, as you said, and had them on display. And we're anticipating product coming in. That's the first part of the journey. From that airport special containment area, again, the product would be transported and would be transported out to hospitals and to other designated sites of care that the state of Pennsylvania would have worked with Health and Human Services to coordinate on. And those organizations in turn would have needed to make available to procure the equivalent type of cold chain equipment to manage and store the vaccine. So when you think about the complexity of it, temperature certainly is the focus here, but the how you get there and what's required by different entities along the way is what adds to the cost factor and function that we were talking about a little earlier. These are, I don't want to call them overly complex, but they're fairly complicated distribution fulfillment logistics that need to be thought through, particularly as you're thinking about product movement and exchange of hands and control. And then on top of that, making sure that we can track and really trace every single vial that's moving through the supply chain. That's an important aspect of it as well. One of the things that I've heard recently about specialty pharmacy, and you can confirm or deny as you understand, is that payers don't like specialty pharmacies. I don't know why they don't like them. So maybe you could tell me why payers don't like them. And I've heard that they're doing something about it. Like they're not not going to allow reimbursement through some specialty pharmacies. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard it. I think part of the challenge and the conflict, if you will, or, or misalignment with the specialty pharmacies and the payers is just alignment around and focus on the patient. And I think where there's some friction is on the roles and responsibilities of the specialty pharmacy and the payer. You know, one simple example, which I think illustrates the point and some of the contention, and then we can talk about what they're doing about it. Especially pharmacies do a number of different tasks beyond just fulfilling the drug, delivering it to the patient. What they do at the very beginning, if especially pharmacy receives a patient intake form for a given condition, the first thing that the specialty pharmacy will do is run a benefits investigation verification on the patient for that drug. And what they're doing is making sure that patient's benefit plan from their insurance carrier is going to reimburse for the drug because especially pharmacy doesn't want to be caught in the middle buying the drug and then not being reimbursed for it. From an operational standpoint, we'll run that BIBV and confirm that. As part of that process, Jeff, the specialty pharmacy may also contact the office, the physician's office where that patient originated. There may be something missing in the paperwork, or they're simply calling the office to verify something. And in my experience and having spoken with office administrators and also specialty pharmacy professionals is that there's an overlap of work, a duplication of work effort. And in some instances, the physician's office feels as though the patient is their patient, especially pharmacy believes the patient is now their patient. And while their interests, I think we can argue, are moving in the right direction from an altruistic standpoint, the operational complexities and and rigor sometimes cause some friction and tension. So that leads us to what are some payers doing now to help alleviate that or to, to streamline things? What we're certainly hearing and seeing more and more is payers having a restricted or limited specialty pharmacy network. So if you're United, uh, a United patient, 
United Healthcare would prefer that if there's a specialty pharmacy requirement, that Briova, Optum slash Briova, is the specialty pharmacy that would be used. Now, United Healthcare may have one or two other specialty pharmacies that they'll allow to fulfill the drug, but they really prefer you to use their own. And why is that? Well, it's kind of single line of sight with the provider. It's part of the same organization, and it reduces some of the additional touches and contacts that happen during the course of getting a patient on therapy. So I think the intent is on operational efficiency and throughput, but in the process, it does cause some problems. So that's one step that payers are taking to help streamline the whole specialty pharmacy fulfillment arm. I think how you began the question is there certainly has been some challenges and some friction out there among payers and SPs, as you've articulated. You've put that, I think, about as kindly as could be made. <laughs> um, <laughs> if I'm looking at it from the outside, I'm saying that, and you stop me if I'm just mischaracterizing things or misunderstanding them, but the large payer may own their own specialty pharmacy and they don't like the competition. That's the main driver there. Am I missing this one? No. I mean, I think from a business standpoint and from an overall contribution, as you said, a lot of the payers are vertically integrated. You know, they may own a PBM as well, and especially pharmacy. And I think we've seen the expansion and a little bit of the acquisition spree. Yeah, there certainly is that part to it. There's no question. If you speak to the strategy and the rationale behind it, it's about the efficiency and the support and value they can bring to their employer customers and certainly the patients and their physician network. But clearly in the end, there's a financial benefit to it as well. So no argument at all on that point. Yeah. Efficiency. Oh, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you tell companies that are starting out into trade? Is there something that most companies and most biopharma companies are doing wrong or that they really need to improve if they want to get the best experience that they can get out of their trade partner? I might also just want to mention at the beginning, we probably should have said this in the beginning. We're not a trade partner. We help advise on this. Your job is not to sell our services on this. So we're not actually selling our great specialty pharmacy or anything like that. No, not at all. And, I, and quite frankly, I think the fact that we do not have a vertical, a business that is shipping drug and those sorts of things is a benefit to us because we can be impartial. And as you said, really focus on the advisory component of what we're bringing to the table. To your question, though, what's the starting point for companies getting stuck somewhere? Are they struggling? Big companies, the big pharma, they've got established relationships and through their portfolio of business have contracts and agreements with major trade intermediaries in the market. So the assistance we might provide a large pharmaceutical company would be more focused or specific around a particular aspect of their trade partner programs. It could be around certain performance metrics things that they're tracking around time to fill. So how long does it take from the point at which the patient is taken into the program by a specialty pharmacy or a specialty distributor, if it's a buy and build product, until the patient actually gets the product? Those are things we, we help advise clients on and putting together different strategies and implementing tactics to help that performance, to get patients to drug more quickly, to keep patients on product longer. Again, there's a true one-to-one -one correlation with the benefit of those things. For a small to mid-sized company, again, that, that may not have a deep infrastructure internally at, at HQ around trade, we play much more of a hands-on role, you know, still in an advisory capacity. And I think with those clients, we're really helping to illuminate what trade and distribution is. To, going back to the very beginning of our discussion, almost mapping from their contract manufacturing organization to their customer, their patient or physician office, what that flow of product looks like. And, and that oftentimes is a starting point. It may sound like a very simple exercise, and it is. 
but it's amazing when you put all the pieces on the table, so to speak, or all the pieces on the board, show the movement and the exchange of information and services and product, and certainly currency, how things begin to resonate and pop with the client. And then from that point, Jeff, it's really saying, okay, let's look at the product. Let's look at our drug. Are we first to market or is there an established supply chain for our product already in the market in terms of different trade partners and relationships and channels that are in play? If there are, we want to look at them and know what they are. And what's a, how is our competition getting product to market? How can we do it better? And, and better could be more efficiently. It could be for less cost. It could be by adding additional programs or services that aren't already in the market that we believe would help advantage our brand. So that's really the starting point is just to assess the need of the product to efficiently reach patients that are taking the product and how we can help that process through the healthcare professionals office and their workflow, as well as other intermediaries that may be involved. That's the step we really take to break down those pieces and then build the strategy from there. What are some companies maybe doing wrong or maybe just not thinking about enough? There's a key point to be made around the distribution strategy. So how are we getting the product to the market? Who are we using? And actually implementing it. And this is an area where there are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of real-time requirement and effort, not overly complicated, just a continuous effort and focus to answer your question. That's an area where you have your trade partners identified, you work through the contracting component with them, and now they're full-fledged partners. Things don't stop there. That's just the very beginning. Now it's a matter of standing those partners up and integrating the different parts and pieces of how they're going to connect ultimately with your customer downstream and how product will get there. I think that's probably a good place to close. Uh, Tony Lanzone, I've learned a lot. Thanks so much for joining me on the Cineo South podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. That's all for today's episode of the Cineo's Health podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineo's Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Thank you.